What a fitting song, Thou Thinkest, Lord of Me. Um, the song that's been going through my mind this morning is that song, We Are Not Alone. It's such a simple little song. It's been sung at some weddings here recently. The, the lyrics are the same pretty much all the way through the song, We Are Not Alone. Just The music is set differently. Uh, I was kind of surprised. I looked it up actually because I was thinking, well, I should know this song. And surely there's, you know, there are more lyrics to it than We Are Not Alone, but that's all there is. God is with us. And uh, that's, that's pretty profound though when you stop and think about it. God is with us. When the Lord's thinking of us, it's not just an abstract thought that He has and He kind of thought about us. And when He says, Thou thinkest, Lord, of me, it means He's with us. He's in our midst and, and walking like he did with us on the Mayus Road. That's, that was, that's a beautiful story. A real story. I like true stories. Today I'd like to look at Romans 6. It seems like we've looked at that pretty frequently here the last while. Um, the message title is Die Well. Live gloriously. Die well, live gloriously. I think that having come through the Easter season, um, this was still on my mind. You know, where do we go from here? Uh, Christ is resurrected. He's gone to be with the Father. He's given His all for us. You know, what do we do now? And... Uh, I'd like to, to look at this. Also, we had a very excellent week of revival meetings here recently. And I'd like to, to, to reflect on that a bit. Let's read this chapter together. Should we stand to read the word? Let's, let's stand. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we, are, we were buried with him and through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he, that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And then I'd like to drop down to verse... 20. For when you were slaves of sins, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have 
your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in, G in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may be seated. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In Romans 5.20 it says, The law entered so that the offense would abound. The law showed man's God, man God's holy requirements. So the law made it clear to man what God's holy requirements are. And in effect, that made sin to abound. Because when man knew what God's holy requirements are, uh, it put like the magnifying glass on it. It showed up everything wrong that man was doing. It also spoke to man's innate propensity or his natural propensity, tendency to sin, to blaspheme God, to violate his neighbor, to be in bondage to the created instead of being a servant to the creator. It made man understand that he's a covetous creature by nature. And that that's sin. Should we thus take advantage of the free gift spoken of in Romans 5 8? You know, should we, because that grace abounds, should we take advantage of that free gift of, that Christ has given of grace? of himself and and uh, pursue doing more sin because you know the grace is there is the free gift like some sort of potent some sort of medication that we can take advantage of to protect ourselves from sin you know something that we can kind of put around ourselves um in Romania, there was the holy water that was sprinkled. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but if it's taken for this reason, it wasn't good. Okay, is there anything that we can put around ourselves and then, you know, indulge ourselves to the fount of evil and to its devilish poison? Should we do that, I think, is what Paul is saying. Verse 2 says, God forbid. How foolish. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Why do we as Christians who are regenerated and born again to live in Christ have such a propensity anyways toward carnality? It's a question I had when I was reading this. You know, God forbid. You know, why do I have a tendency towards carnality? You know, I've been regenerated. I've been born again to live in Christ. Why would I have that tendency to go back to the flesh, to sin? The song, I think, well expresses that sentiment. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Doesn't that well express how sometimes we feel? We long to be dead to sin. But we find many roots. I find many roots. Many manifestations. And many, God forbid, forbid, I'm afraid, but God forbid, fruits of unrighteousness. You know, we, as Christians, there may be roots. 
We need to be working at getting those out, roots of unrighteousness, but we for sure need to be stopping them before they become fruit. You know, we've experienced revival as a church very recently, and I'd like to reflect a bit on that. You know, hopefully each one of us has been revived. As we've listened to the Word expounded evening after evening and then on Sunday, in our spirits I trust have responded to God's Spirit through the Word. You know, by this time we should be seeing some good fruit from that. It takes grass maybe from what seven to twenty-one days to to grow. You see, you seed, and then you see grass. At least in often in fourteen days. Well, we've been that far now since revivals. Hopefully, we've seen some fruits already. You know, maybe we've seen some blossoms at least. You know, have we watered the soil since the revival? Have we looked back and thought about how's God's Spirit spoke to me. How has the message spoke to me? And have we seen some, some growth? Good growth. Solid growth. Have we listened and been obedient to the Spirit's prompting? Romans 6.3 Know ye not that so many of you as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Baptized into his death. And that's where the title comes from, Die Well. You know, what a more fitting time than right now to reflect on the baptism into Christ's death, right? Soon after Easter. I'd like to look a bit, just recap a bit of what death meant for Christ. Death for Christ meant giving up his right as creator to place himself at the mercy of his creation, of his corrupted creation. Not of his doing, but of man's choice, corrupted. So he put himself at the mercy of his creation for a time. Death for Christ meant living in obedience to imperfect parents. How many of you children have imperfect parents? Or how many of us adults have had imperfect parents? Or even have imperfect parents? Probably all of us. And death for Christ meant putting himself in, in obedience to imperfect parents. Christ had good parents. And God has blessed many of us with good parents. Christ had a godly and blessed mother. And God has blessed many of us in the same way. Now the blessed mother was very, had a very special place in that she carried in her self, in her womb, the Son of God. But nevertheless, we have blessed parents. But nonetheless, Christ was here. He submitted Himself to human parents who are prone to human failures. He submitted himself. That was death for Christ, I believe. A form of death, of giving himself up. Death for Christ meant being respectful to the teachers who had serious need of being taught by him. 
death for Christ meant leaving people to make their own very selfish and foolish choices. Choices that would wreak further destruction on his own people, people made in his own image, his own creation. I'm sure it must have been so difficult for Christ to see, and it continues to be difficult for him to see people make choices that actually hurt his creation, hurt. Uh, bring hurt to his to his creation that's made in his own image, humans. Death for Christ meant giving of himself to undeserving mankind. It meant healing nine lepers who didn't even so much as turn around and give him thanks. Death for Christ meant being about his father's business instead of being about his own business. Of course, his own, own business was his father's business, but, you know, the devil tempted him to leave the way of the cross and take the way of, of carnal ambition. And he turned that down. Death for Christ meant reattaching the ear of the soldier instead of completing Peter's design. Death for Christ finally brought about all the cruelties of the crucifixion that we focused on the last several weeks. His willingness to say, not my will, but thine be done, and then follow through with action. In the above verse, Paul states, we're baptized into Jesus Christ. Into his death, we're baptized. Into Christ Jesus' death, we're baptized. We're not baptized into some sort of club or some sort of organization really. Now, the church is made up of baptized people. And for that reason, the church, um, for the purity of the body, the church, it's important that people that are baptized into the death of Christ are, are the members of, of the church. But we're not baptized into a club, we're baptized into the death of Christ. First Peter 4.13 says, But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Being partakers of Christ's sufferings. Dying to self isn't rational. It doesn't make sense. Uh, and I think that's why it's foolishness to so many people dying to self. It is a call of Christ, though, to mankind. The true church is made up of those who have been baptized into the death of Christ. Jesus says in Luke 9.23, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is probably the most important concept, and it's the hardest concept a man can learn, a Christian must learn, and that is to die well, to die daily. Suffering and taking up our cross is a form of turning over our will, or turning in our will, for the will of the Father.
And then being willing to follow through. It's one thing to say we will. It's another thing to really follow through. Step by step. Taking up the cross. And we want a cross that's hammered out of silver and that comes on a little silver chain necklace that we can take off and put back on, you know, at will. But that's not the cross that Christ extends to us. The cross that Christ extends to us can come in many different forms and is often rough and splintery and hard to carry. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. This verse directly links our ability to live to our willingness to die. Buried with him in baptism, like Christ, raised to the glory of the Father, from, from the dead to the glory of the Father, like Christ again, in newness of life. So our ability, our, our willingness to die is, is directly linked to our ability to, to live, being rephrased there. You know, the question comes to my mind, can we, is it possible for us to make for ourselves permanent Gethsemanes? And, and, and think about this a bit. We want what is right. Is it possible to, you know, that we want what it to, to want what is right, to be at this point where we really want to do the right thing, but in our heart of hearts we're afraid you know, to, to respond to the Father and, and really say, not my will, but thine be done. You know, this brings us, that attitude brings us to the, to the foot of the cross, so, so to speak. It brings us to Gethsemane. And it brings us a lot of suffering, but it really doesn't allow us to, to grow into newness of life. It kind of leaves us there. And how many times do we f sit there in Gethsemane? You know, we, we, we continue to struggle. We know we want what's right, but we just can't quite give in and quite, can't quite, because of that, can't grow into newness of life. Imagine a mother not giving birth for fear of labor. You know, perpetual pregnancy. Um, no new life. You know, physically that isn't possible, but when, those, when that term of pregnancy is almost complete, a mother wants to give birth. It wants to move on. Um, but too many times we maybe just get to the point where new life should come, new spiritual life should come, but we don't move ahead. We had a little girl that came to our orphanage in Romania. Her name was Nicoletta, sweet little girl with dark jet black hair. The only problem was is if you pulled that hair apart when she first came to us, you saw it was just crawling with little white things in there. And suppose this little girl that was five years old when she came to us, now there's all, all those little white crawly things in there. Suppose that she could have told us and commanded us, no, okay, you know, you, you can feed me, you can give me love, but I'm not going to let you, allow you to go, uh, you know, wash my hair with stuff that will help these little crawly things to come out. And I'm not going to allow you to pick through my hair and pick these little crawly things out and clean my head. Um, because, you know, 
I've had these things all my life and, and I'm not sure what I'd do without them. And yet sometimes I think I'm that way. I come to God that way. You know, I just don't want God to take those lice out of my hair. I'm afraid it just, you know, what, what it might be like to have those removed. And, uh, you know, probably the things that he wants to take out of my hair are just as bad and a lot worse probably than those little lice were for Nicoletta. We want the warmth, we want the love of God. But God says, you know, we got some things we need to take care of before we're really going to be able to to have good communion, sweet communion. The Father would raise us from death into glory. He would bring that about, and that's what He wants to do. It's His will. But we have a job. We must submit to our death for Him to move ahead, and that's dying well. That's being willing to lay down. And that is much easier to preach than to do. I can assure you of that. Romans 6, 5, For if we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also be, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. There is a promise there, though. If we're willing to submit to Christ, to God, in the likeness of His death, willing to say, Not my will, but thine be done, without reservation, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. And that's glorious. We want gain without pain. Again, we want the symbolic cross. But that's not what brings about newness of life. Being planted. If we have been planted together, that gives the impression of something much more permanent. You don't just plant and unplant. Uh, To plant means prepping the soil, fertilizing it, watering it, and so forth. Being planted into the likeness of his death means going all the way. We just planted a bunch of grapevines. They came to us and I thought they might have a little root ball and so we went out and started digging up for these grapevines. And uh, then we went to open up the bag and plant the first one and lo and behold there was a root system that was that long and it just had a little stem that, that tall. And I looked at that and I looked at the boys and I said, well, let's go get the excavator. Because... I didn't want all that digging. We had 15 to put into the ground. And those are well planted now. Uh, The root system is completely extended under that ground, and I hope they'll do well. But you know, after those are planted, you don't just go back and unplant them again. We're planted together in the likeness of his death. It's a determination. I had a businessman, a local businessman, tell me a few years ago, he saw that I was wanting to make one purchase and there was another one I'd like to make. And uh, he said, you know, Gerald, I said, just write one check. It's less painful that way. Um, you know, he was wanting me to do that larger transaction right away. For me, the truth is that writing several smaller checks actually feels less painful. But when it comes to being planted, I think it's less painful to to take the, the big step, being planted into the likeness of his death. You go ahead and write the big check. And that doesn't mean that we don't have to take up our cross again another day, like Jesus said, another day. But it does mean that maybe God can 
can move us into his newness and into experiencing his newness and, and make our life much more meaningful, much more quickly if we go ahead and take the big step right away instead of trying to hold, instead of trying to reserve, trying to hold things back. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Hmm. That the body of sin might be destroyed, annihilated, done away with. That henceforth we should not serve sin. You know, Christ didn't have an old man to be crucified like we do. Um, He only served as an example in this regard. However, in a very real sense, he had to die to his own will. And that's the example. Our old sinful self gets to share the suffering of the sinless Christ. Christ served as an example of laying down his life, laying down his own will to the will of the fathers. He didn't have an old man to crucify. We do. Maybe this is why Peter didn't feel worthy to be hanged Upright, he wanted to be hanged upside down according to tradition. Maybe he didn't, maybe he felt like, you know, this was part of it. He, he had a, was different for him than it was for Christ. We're crucified with Christ when we nail our will to the cross and let it die. Period. But then again, our will doesn't die easy, does it? We find those roots that we need to work with. Romans 6, verse 7, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Freedom from sin. You know, how wonderful. How can we say this, you know, living in this time, this culture, in human flesh? After so many struggles against sin and against evil, imagine being free from sin, totally free. No sin, no longer having any kind of draw on us. No longer having any, any kind of pull on us. I think we have to qualify this a little bit. Now, Israel wasn't free of Pharaoh's clutches until they crossed the Red Sea. They'd gone through the Red Sea. They'd stepped in. And they got out of Egyptian territory and the Egyptian army, of course, was destroyed. That's when they were free from Pharaoh's clutches. They were out of Egypt. You know, there, God dealt the death blow to Pharaoh. And that's where we cross the Red Sea. I believe it's when Christ deals the death blow to Satan and his design for our lives. But having been freed from Pharaoh, looking back at the children of Israel in bondage, you know, when they were, they were freed from Pharaoh, he, God had dealt the death blow to them. They were across the Red Sea. They were on the other side. But it was possible for them to look back, the children of Israel to look back, and they did, and to look back at Egypt and think about the, you know, the good things there that they had there. It was possible for them to think lightly of Egypt's bondage even in light of 
the struggle they had ahead. And it was possible for them to complain and to make golden calves and, and uh, worship heathen gods. And it's also possible for us to flaunt the grace of Christ in this way. But it's not responsible of us. Neither is it healthy. It's not responsible of us to look back into Egypt or to, to think lightly of sin and, and sin's bondage and Satan's bondage. It's not healthy for us. And in persistence in flaunting the grace of Christ, I believe will eventually rot our salvation to its core and leave us wandering aimlessly in the desert and homeless. You know, if, if, we're, if we flaunt the grace of Christ, we basically lose purpose and we find ourselves homeless and in the desert wandering. God's will for our lives is to leave bondage, decay, to leave the bondage and decay behind and move on towards conquering. He rules that that little bit of creativity that we've been endowed with, each one of us has been endowed with by our Creator, as written in the Constitution, that that would flourish and it would produce fruits of godliness for the good of mankind. That's what God's will is for our lives. God's will is that our allegiance to Egypt and our servitude to Pharaoh be completely, totally severed. And that is death complete. And that is dying well. Romans 6 verse 8. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. If we have completely submitted our will to the will of the Father as Christ did, then we have reason to believe that we shall live with Christ. We shall walk in newness of life. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Referring back to verse 1 again, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No way. If we've truly been baptized into Christ's death, it'll go against our new nature to presume on God's grace by alleging ourselves again with, with Egypt. We're truly alive when we're alive unto Jesus Christ. And to be alive in Jesus Christ is to be living gloriously. It's, be, it's to live with purpose. To be living in fulfilled life. You know, not that there'll be no longer battles stemming from our old nature. Not that there won't be the Philistines to face and, and uh, other heathen nations to overcome. And God hasn't promised us a painless battle, but He has promised us to bring victory. He has promised to bring us the victory and to bring us new life. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So now we're stepping from newness of life. We've been born anew into moving on into moving on to spiritual warfare. This is what I call phase two. Phase two of living the glorious life is fighting to enlarge the borders of God's kingdom. You know, perhaps our greatest weakness is to constantly fight defense. To just to stay on the defense. You know, as long as the devil can keep us quarantined by playing defense, he's in effect winning, or at least he's minimizing his losses. You know, our goal is to enlarge the border of God's kingdom into the heart of men. Not to beat up the devil. That's not our goal to beat up the devil, but it's to enlarge the borders of God's kingdom. But when we go to enlarge the borders of God's kingdom, we will encounter opposition. That is unless, you know, we're Russia invading the Ukraine. Um, But the devil is not Russia and and the opposing force is not the Ukraine. It's a much more serious battle than that. A warfare with much more at stake, a warfare much more subtle, a warfare that's waged in our daily lives, and a warfare that can only be won by divine intervention, and then I would add, can only be lost by lack of trust and obedience to God. It's a warfare that can only be won by divine intervention and that can only be lost by lack of trust and obedience to God. So how do we play the offense? How do we fight offensively? I think when we stay in the defense all the time and we're worried about, well, did we have enough devotions this morning? Did we pray enough last night? You know, did we do this? Did we do that? I mean, those are things to be concerned about. But God would have us move on to reaching out further into the needs of others. And when we do that, those did we do enough of this will become a mechanism to keep us moving ahead of like reinforcement. We'll know when we need more. And, and a discipline is good, a good way to start that, to have devotions, to have prayer. But um, it's not an end in itself. It's only a good discipline to take us further on. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Look to the Lord for strength. It says, look, put on the whole armor of God. Properly identify the enemy. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. That means our enemy cannot be human. So we have to identify the enemy. Our enemy is, is a much more subtle enemy. It's one of the mind of destroying. It's one of ideas. Um, and we have to be strong. We have to be well-versed. We have to look to the word to know how to respond to these evil ideas and evil thoughts that float around, around us in our society. Galatians 5.13 says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for occasion to the flesh. But by love serve one another. 
For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Serve one another. That's another way of of reaching out, of really uh, going on the offense. Focus on God's mission for your life, for my life. And I have a subheading here, learn to block the ball. This illustration came to my mind when I was studying this. I, I was in the eighth, probably in the eighth or ninth grade in school when we first got our volleyball net. Now the youth had a volleyball net, but as a school we didn't have one. We played softball before school, during school, after school, and every other part of the day. I mean, when we weren't in school or, or studying, we played softball. And uh, our teacher got us, we, we would pick ac- uh, acorns, uh, walnuts every year at, at a farm, one of our church people's farms. And those, the money from those walnuts we could use towards whatever equipment or so forth we wanted to for the school. And we that year decided to put it towards a, a volleyball net and buying a volleyball. And so here we are, I'm in the eighth grade, and it's the first time we've had a, a, a volleyball in school and a volleyball net. And um, it, it was pretty interesting because we had a, um, we had a, our volleyball area that we played on, the one side dropped down about 20 feet down to some blackberry bushes and there was a stream down there. And uh, it was probably a 15 degree slope going down through there. And we, so we spent about a, a third of our time, you know, figuring out the rules, another third of our time playing volleyball, and another third of our time, you know, going after retrieving the ball out of the blackberry bushes. And, and uh, it was kind of interesting those first, first uh, few months. The girls were real courteous, and they, they, would, uh, they would not, you know, they would let us get, us guys get all the balls as far as, you know, hitting them back and forth. And they also let us guys be gallant and go ahead and get, get the ball out of the blackberry bushes too. And uh, so anyways, um, I was probably in the ninth grade and our family went down to visit my uncle Gary's in North Carolina. It was during the school year, so I attended school with my cousins. And uh, here I was, I was, you know, the ninth grader, the gallant emerging volleyball star from home, from the home team. Uh, and I'm going abroad now. And I get to this other school where they, uh, in my school, we didn't have high school. It was ninth grade was only, you went to the ninth grade only if you brought your own curriculum. And uh, so I go down to this other school that have, where they have 12 grades and, and, uh, and they've had volleyball for many years. And I, you know, I'm thinking I'm pretty, I do pretty well at volleyball. So I'm looking forward to the volleyball game. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden I find myself not so formidable of a player at this new setting. Um, these, these, uh, this junior coming in there uh, is probably not, you know, appreciated even as much as a lot of the girls are. And uh, on top of that, why, why, you know, there was, they had new, new techniques that I didn't know anything about, like, you know, passing the ball and different things like that, blocking the ball. And there's one guy that kept yelling at me, block the ball, block the ball. And, uh, you know, 
he wasn't being rude. He was just being, he's been, you know, suggesting, come on, you can do better. And it took me a while to, to figure, you know, how, how to block the ball. And I'm still not sure if I figured it out. But it means, it means precipitating what's coming to you. It means being super focused on the other team, your opponent's body language. Uh, because, you know, if your body's up in the air before the ball starts coming over, your gravity's going to be taking you back down and you really can't block the ball. And if you're, you know, wait just a little bit too long, well, you can't block the ball because the ball's flying overhead. Um, so it means being very super focused on, on your opponent's body language, what he's going to do. Well, that's the kind of focus I believe that God would have for us in the church for and serving our fellow men. The block the ball focus, a, a super focus for, for uh, what God has put into our lives. Whether it's fathering, mothering, brothering, or sistering, God has a reason for everything he puts into our lives. And I know we can't be super focused just on everything. We, we as humans aren't God. We can't cover every base. But I think God puts specific details into each one of our lives that he says, you know, this is your responsibility. Here's where you focus. And he has a reason for placing us there. Maybe a time for placing us there. And that's where he wants us to focus. He wants us to, to uh, enlarge his border there. We can't guard the Philistines over in the other quarters. We can't, you know, make sure the heathens aren't entering it over there so as to speak in figurative language. But he puts us, you know, at this one place and he says, this is, I want you to be focused here. And, uh, you know, that's a challenge for me. Am I focused where God has me? One more verse out of Corinthians. Every man, according as as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not, grudging, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. We need to get beyond the just getting by attitude that comes, you know, that grace may abound. We need to get beyond that to the, we're so glad, we're so, it's so wonderful to be part of the family of God. Um, we need to get to that attitude. There's a, diff, there's a big difference there. There was an elderly brother in our church in Seymour in Missouri who often made this statement. Don't just give until it hurts. Give until it quits hurting. Don't just give until it hurts and then stop. Give until it quits hurting. Well, he was talking about monetary giving, but that goes far beyond that. I think in so many areas. Um, you know, I saw it just in my own children. They, they're... Uh, and giving them a job and, and they look at it and they grimace and they're like, well, we don't, you know, this is like so big and huge. And then they get into it and they started, you know, start getting the spirit of the feeling of getting this job done, a challenge of getting it done and, and seeing things develop. And all of a sudden there's a joy there. Well, that, that's, that's the creativity that God has put in within us, I believe. And we need to, when we understand God's purpose, move beyond that just surviving, just doing what we can to get by, but moving on to giving until it quits hurting, until it's a joy. Giving our work, our church, to our boss, our clients, our family. In doing this, I believe we play the offense. We go beyond the have to and must die to the joy of, of living, alive in Christ because of Christ's purpose for us. 
we're, we've been dead to ourselves and we've become alive to, to God's will. And that's as glorious as it's going to get on this set of eternity, I think. Um, it's going to be much more glorious on the other side. But until then, we have this opportunity to live a glorious life of, of purpose in Christ. God bless you.